approximately 400 years after the prophetic ministry of Malachi, Yahweh commissioned John the Baptist as a prophet to prepare the way for Jesus' coming and for his ministry. And he faithfully proclaimed the coming kingdom. He preached wherever he went, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spoke with a a voice and with a fervor that hadn't been heard in Israel for so long. And as he spoke in the same way of the great prophets, crowds would travel for days and days to come and hear him preach. People listened, they confessed their sins, and John baptized them in the Jordan River close to Jericho, just north of the Dead Sea. And it's at this point in John's ministry that we get to the account of the baptism of Jesus. So turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. It's a, it's a wonderful passage of Scripture, which in most Bibles is entitled The Baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, we're going to be reading through to verse 17. This is the Word of God. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we come to you this morning because you are God. We come to you this morning not just because we want to study your word and to fellowship together and to be drawn into a closer fellowship with you, but we want ever more to be confronted with the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who is before us as the divine standard of righteousness and holiness and godliness and truth. May he ever be before us as the goal of our lives, O Lord, which is to be conformed into his image. And Lord, may you continuously and continually mold and shape us into that same righteousness and holiness and godliness and truth that we have in him. We thank you, Father, for your word to us. And as always, we pray and ask that you would bless the reading of it and the study of it today. May you open our hearts and our minds now as we look at the text and at what you are saying to us through it. And may your spirit work in each of us as you show us how to apply the truths of this text to our lives so that we may go forth and live for you in a God-honoring way. We pray you bless this time. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. On the 8th of September 2022, just over a year ago, we heard the breaking news that Queen Elizabeth II of England 
had died. Her reign as Queen of England had lasted some seven decades, the longest lasting monarch in the history of England. After an estimated 2.5 billion people across the planet watched her funeral on the 19th of September, the next thing that the world had to look forward to was the coronation of her oldest son, Charles, the Prince of Wales, the heir to her throne as King Charles III. The coronation which was held on the, on the 6th of May this year, it was a lavish seminary. It was, it was held in London's Westminster Abbey. Uh, in the presence there was uh, politicians from all over the world, heads of state, um, public figures. There were some 2,200 invited guests at the coronation itself. Uh, the whole event was extremely lavish. It cost about 1.2 billion rand to put together. And in the service itself, the Archbishop of Canterbury placed King Edward's crown from 1689 on the new king's head. And after which he, King Charles, then took the oath, the coronation oath, to rule England according to law and to maintain the Church of England. He was then anointed, blessed, and consecrated by the Archbishop, and he received in his hands the golden orb and the scepters that go with being king. After that, Holy Communion was celebrated, and then the Archbishop made a massive pronouncement to the whole world that the new King of England had ascended to the throne to take his rightful place as head of state. Watched by millions across the globe in a lavish affair that cost billions of rands, this man was crowned King of England for one reason and one reason only, and that's that he was the firstborn son of the late Queen. That's it. No other reason just that one. And so you ask, well, what does that have to do with the passage that we've just read? Because, as I said, most Bibles would have as its title, this passage, the baptism of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. The baptism of Jesus does take place in this passage, but it's not the main event. If you go back to previous chapters in Matthew, you will see that Matthew plots for us a narrative of the timeline of events with a very specific purpose in mind. In Matthew chapter 1, he gives us the earthly genealogy of Jesus and he points in there to his royal lineage. In verse 1, when referring to the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew calls him the son of David who we know was the king of Israel, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew adds to this kingly line by pointing to the spiritual genealogy of Jesus in the angelic announcement 
of the conception of Jesus, the Messiah. In Matthew 1 verse 20, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, he said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 21, he adds and he says, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now listen to this. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people. Who has people other than a king, right? This is kingly language. From here on, we have the account of the birth of the king in the first part of chapter 2, we have the adoration of the future king of the Jews. Matthew 2 verse 1 and 2, where we have the Magi coming from the east saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Again, this kingly narrative. And then in the first portion of chapter 3, we see the herald john the baptist coming along and announcing the arrival of the king verse 2 saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and in verse 11 he boldly declares saying as for me i baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than i and i'm not fit to remove his sandals and so it's clear to us as we look at these scriptures that Matthew is pointing us to something else. We are witnessing in these passages before us so much more than just the baptism of Jesus. In fact, what we are witnessing is the next event in the timeline of the king. And this is his coronation. It's the crowning of King Jesus. MacArthur commented on this, and I love what he says. He says, after an eternity of glory in heaven and some 30 years of virtual obscurity on earth, the Messiah King is manifested publicly for the world to see and know. Incredible. And so, as compared to the whole world watching the coronation of the son of the late Queen Elizabeth as King of England... Here in Matthew 3, we have the coronation of the Son of Man as King of the universe. And whereas King Charles was crowned simply for being the firstborn son of the Queen, as we look at this pas passage in Matthew 3, from verse 13 to 17, we will learn of four credentials of Jesus for which he was rightfully crowned King of kings four credentials of jesus that will motivate us to surrender our lives to him as king to proclaim him as our king to yield to him as king to submit to him as king to follow him as king to serve him as king and to worship him as king for all eternity i'll say it again more succinctly in the account of the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3 verses 13 to 17 we will see four kingly credentials for which he was rightfully crowned as king of kings that will motivate us 
to worship Him as our King. In verse 13 and 14, we will see that Jesus was righteous. And then in verse 15, we'll see that Jesus was obedient. In verse 16, we'll see that Jesus was anointed. And in verse 17, we'll see that Jesus was acceptable. The credentials of Christ, according to which he was crowned king, was that he's righteous, that he was obedient, that he was anointed, and that he was acceptable to the Father. And obviously these are true in the present, but quoted in terms of the narrative. So look with me at number one. Jesus was righteous. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now wait a minute. Stop there for a second. Why on earth would Jesus want to be baptized by John? That just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's bad enough that we read in verse 7, just before this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to John to be baptized. I mean, these two groups of people didn't really get along at all. And so for them to come together to be baptized was strange to begin with. But then to want the baptism of repentance was even more bizarre. It doesn't make sense. Baptism was something that was required for Jews who were unclean. Who needed to be cleansed, ceremoniously cleansed. And also for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. They had to be baptized. This was a requirement of the law. And in the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and this was probably the only thing they agreed upon, they were all Abraham's descendants, so they were righteous to begin with. They did not need the baptism of repentance. They were, they were pleasing in God's eyes, in their minds, just because they were from Abraham. That's what they thought. But John certainly didn't think so. He knew they were wicked. He knew they needed to be repent, to repent and be baptized. In Matthew 3, verse 7 to 9, he says to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abram. They're saying, don't think that just because you're from Abram, you are righteous. He didn't mince his words. He knew these guys were rotten to their very core. And he told them they needed to repent. And friends, this counts for all of us who've ever been born. Every one of us. All sinners need to repent. Romans 3.23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, all. 1 John 1.10, the apostle John attests to the same fact, saying, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him what? A liar. And his word's not in us. Acts 17.30, God is now command, commanding men that everyone, everywhere, should repent. But Jesus, holy, blameless, beautiful, sinless, undefiled Jesus? 
just doesn't make sense. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, was just as astonished as we are. And he asked this, he says, Does the holy Jesus that is separated from sinners come to be baptized by a sinner, as a sinner, and among sinners? How can this be? So it's the same question in John's mind. Look what he does. Verse 14. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? The Greek verb used here for prevent is, is dikaioluen, and koluo meaning to hinder or to restrain, to withhold or to forbid. Very emphatic words. And the imperfect tense here suggests that he continued this effort to stop Jesus. He kept on trying to prevent him. He was forceful. He was using very uh, emphatic pronouns. He was saying, I have need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And you come to me? D.A. Carson, I love this. He said, there is certain, there's a certain irony in John's difficulty baptizing the leaders because they were not worthy of baptism. While here, he has difficulty allowing Jesus to be baptized because John's not worthy of him. True, right? And so John says, I have need to be baptized by you. There's a sense of bewilderment in John. He didn't want to do this. Now ask yourself, why did he not want to do this? Was it because he knew Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, friends, the text suggests that there was not. We have the Bible today. We have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. And so we have the benefit of knowing that Jesus at that point, that he was the Messiah. But here in Matthew 3 verse 14, John did not know that. Earlier on in the book of John, in chapter 1 verse 33, John testifies to this fact that at that point when Jesus arrived there, he did not know. Watch this. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Friends, we don't know if this was the case or that John didn't know Jesus. I mean, after all, they were related by their mothers. Their mothers were cousins. And no doubt, John would have been told the story of how he leapt in his mother's womb for joy when he came into the presence when she came into the presence of the unborn baby Jesus, Luke 1.44. And since their mothers were cousins, there's no doubt that as kids maybe they played together, spent time together. Matthew doesn't tell us. The point is, at this point, Jesus, Matthew did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. He only knew that the moment of the baptism. So why did he not want to baptize Jesus? And it's clear, it's clear, friends, that as he was confronted 
by Christ, he was confronted with an absolute righteousness that was unmistakable. And he saw that righteousness in Jesus and it conflicted with his own unrighteousness. Even though John did not know Jesus was the Messiah, he was convinced of Jesus' righteousness. He didn't know Jesus was the Son of God, but he knew he had never seen someone as righteous as this man who stood before him right there and then. And since baptism uh, uh, signifies repentance, John realized that he was the one needing to repent and not Jesus. We know that John was very good at spotting sin. He was good at pointing out unrighteousness. He was not afraid to confront sinners head on. He tackled and rebuked the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and their greed and their self-righteousness. He hammered Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife and for a whole host of other wicked things he had done. In Luke 3 verse 12 to 14, he rebuked the tax collectors and said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. We know that they would take what was needed for Rome and then they charge extra for their own pocket, a vile sin. In the same way, he rebuked the Roman soldiers, said don't take money from anyone by force or extort anyone and be content with your wages. He spotted them a mile away. Their greed, their dishonesty, and he didn't mince his words. He would go straight for the jugular every time. But when Jesus shows up at the Jordan, he was stunned. He had nothing. He knew Jesus was sinless and did not need to be baptized. As I said, we don't know how he knew this. It could be the same way that we don't know how the thief on the cross knew the same thing of Jesus. In Luke 23, 41, he rebuked the other thief who was blaspheming Jesus and said to him, we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for what we've done. But this man has done nothing wrong. He saw it. MacArthur says this of the thief, John MacArthur. He says, God opened his heart to the truth and miraculously, powerfully, sovereignly, instantly granted him faith and eternal life. And that faith was in the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Friends, apart from those who knew Jesus growing up, all others know the truth of the righteousness of Christ because God has revealed it to them. It's because Jesus was sinless that he was qualified to be our Messiah, to be the Redeemer of the world. John didn't believe that Jesus was sinless because he first believed him to be the Messiah. No, it was the other way around. He ultimately believed Jesus was the Messiah because he first believed him to be sinless. There were many others who saw it. Pilate saw it. The chief priests knew, knew it. They knew he was sinless. The writer of Hebrews ultimately said in verse chapter 415, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Jesus was absolutely and totally and completely righteous. The first credential that earned him the title of king. The second credential we're going to look at is that Jesus was obedient. Now at this point, we still don't know why Jesus wants to be baptized. If he was sinless, he didn't need repentance. He didn't need to be baptized. So why did he do it? And then Matthew 3.15, Jesus answers John. He gives us the answer and he says, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The words to fulfill here has the nuance of accomplishing something, to complete something, to, and in this case, to accomplish the predictions and the experiences of the Old Testament with regards to Messiah. It also means to bring to completion or fill to the full. In other words, Jesus, his aim was to complete all that God had set out for him to do. In whatever way it happened, we know John came face to face with this revelation of the righteousness of Christ. And in, in a way, Jesus here reinforces that for John. Just in case there was doubt in, any, in anybody's mind about his righteousness, he reinforced it by wanting to do this. His main aim was to fulfill all righteousness. It was the goal of Jesus to be perfect in every way and in every regard. We see this all the way through his ministry. John 4.34, Jesus said, Then my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the one will of him who sent me. John 8 verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus' life was marked by absolute perfection, and that perfection came through his obedience. He always did what was pleasing to his father. And here, in front of John, at the Jordan River, Jesus manifested again his desire to be obedient. And the, the occasion was significant. This was his coronation and he was going to be obedient even here. He didn't deny that he was spiritually superior to John. He didn't deny that he was sinless. But for John's sake, he insisted that the act of baptism, even though it seemed inappropriate, that it was in fact appropriate. For God's plan to be perfectly fulfilled, it was necessary for Jesus to be obedient and be baptized. Baptism was something that was ordained by God as far back as Leviticus 16, which highlights how important and how significant and holy this ceremonial cleansing is to God. You can go and look it up and read it. John's baptism of repentance followed this paradigm of cleansing, requiring everyone, not just Gentile, uh, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, to go through the waters of baptism because everyone needs repentance. No one is sinless. It was something that God required, and Jesus submitted to that baptism 
as an example of obedience. This was no different to Jesus taking the Passover meal for many, many years, even though he was the Passover lamb. It's no different to Jesus attending synagogue, even though he was the incarnate word. It's no different to Jesus paying temple tax, even though the whole earth and the whole universe belonged to him anyway. He didn't get baptized, friends, because he was sinful or because he's trying to make himself right with God. He got baptized because God required it. Simple as that. This was the first act of his ministry. The first step in the redemptive plan that he came to fulfill. He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin submitted to the baptism for sinners. And in this act, the Savior of the world took his place among the sinners of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I've said it a few times over the last few weeks, but I'll say it again. He, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus desired baptism because he desired to be obedient. Now when you think about it, Jesus didn't give John the explanation I just gave you it still could not have made much sense to John right there and then. But even John understood the basic principles of obedience. Especially when standing in the face of such absolute righteousness that you cannot deny. And so at the end of verse 15 he says, then he permitted him. Friends, the, the commands of God to us, the instructions of God to us, don't always make sense. They don't have to make sense, right? The person who desires to obey will not worry about whether those commands make sense. The commands of God don't have to be pleasing to us or logical or convenient or easy to the person who desires to obey. A person who desires to obey just wants to know what the command is. All the reasons are left up to God. The person who wants to obey just does that and obeys. God commanded it, so John consented to it. And so we see that not only was Jesus extremely and absolutely and totally righteous, but we also see why he was righteous. And he was righteous because he was passionate about obedience. Two reasons why Jesus is king. Jesus was righteous, and Jesus was obedient. Third reason, the third credential why Jesus was crowned king is that Jesus was anointed. Matthew 3, verse 16. Here we have the actual coronation taking place. It says, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descend, descending like a dove and coming upon him. Friends, this was the moment of his coronation. This was the moment of his anointing as king. This was the moment that God had warned John of 
and prepared him for earlier, as we saw. It was the moment that John testified of in John 1.34 when he said, I myself have seen and I've testified that this is the Son of God. This moment, as Jesus came up from being fully immersed in the water, this was the moment when heaven opened and the Spirit of God anointed Jesus for his task as king. That was the moment where he was announced to the world the king had arrived. Friends, Jesus was crowned as king, not by man. John may have done the baptism, but it was God who crowned Jesus. Psalms 2 verse 6, Yahweh says, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Isaiah 9 verse 6 to 7, same thing. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Friends, Jesus is King. Anointed by the Holy Spirit, crowned by God the Father for the task that was put before him. And that's laid out for us beautifully in Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 3. Turn with me there. Let's reflect on that just for a minute. Jesus, as King, has the task. The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. Friends, at this point in Matthew's gospel, if the genealogy didn't convince you that Jesus was king, if the wise men didn't convince you, if all the fulfilled prophecies up to this point hadn't convinced you, if the herald John the Baptist hadn't done it for you, this certainly, the coronation here, should be enough proof. I've no doubt in my mind that everybody who was there and present and who witnessed what happened were convinced. Jesus has just been crowned by God the Father. He's the King. All that you and I have left to do, friends, is to surrender to Him. Why? Number one, because He's righteous. Number two, because He's obedient. And number three, because He's anointed by God as our King. This brings us to the fourth credential, probably the most important one. And that is that Jesus was crowned King because He was acceptable to the Father. 
In verse 16, we saw how the Holy Spirit of God descended like a dove and came down upon Jesus, anointing him for the service, for the task that we've just read, granting him strength for this ministry that he was to fulfill. The Spirit anointed him for his kingly service. And it's very significant that the the confirming sign was like that of a dove. To the Jews who were there, the dove was a symbol of repentance. It was, it was recognized as the animal which the poor Jews of the day would bring as a sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. And we know from Exodus 12.5 that for a sacrifice to be acceptable, it had to be pure. It had to be spotless. It had to be without any blemish. And that was always very difficult to find, to find an animal that was like that. It was not possible to find such a perfect animal. But apart from that, over and above that, we also know from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10.4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But here's Jesus. Perfect, blameless, holy Jesus. And of, and of him, in comparison to every other sacrifice that has ever been made since the day Adam and Eve walked out of that garden, Matthew 3.17 says, And behold, there was a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The final member of the Trinity made his presence known. Can you imagine the scene? I've, I've, I've tried to live myself in that scene. Everyone who was there must have been completely dumbstruck. God, the Almighty One, the Creator of the universe, the King of glory, majestic in His holiness, majestic in His power. God Himself spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Mind-blowing. We know from John 12, 28, that it must have been a thundering voice. It must have laid people low. They must have fallen to their faces when they heard that voice. Agapetos, beloved. It speaks of a rich and a deep and a personal and an intimate love for His Son. And with this thundering voice, God declared to all who were there that in His Son He was well pleased. The Greek verb there, eudokeo, meaning to be well pleased, means to take pleasure in something and to take and to make consent. To consent. Wonderful combination there. God had examined His Son for the reason that he would ultimately offer himself as the sacrifice. And God examined him, looked at him, and knew that he was sinless. He would offer himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of all those with whom he now identified himself. And no imperfection could be found in him. And God was delighted. God was pleased. 
Jesus was perfectly righteous and thus he was acceptable to be the ultimate sacrifice. He was righteous, he was obedient, he was anointed and because of all of this, he was acceptable. The sacrifice for our sins and our redemption was to be made as 1 Peter 1 18, 19 says, not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus ultimately went to the cross. He hung there. He shed his blood on that cross in agony, in pain, in the shame of humiliation. He bore upon himself the punishment for all mankind's sin. And he died. Obedient to the very end. Even when it seemed unnecessary. Even when others tried to dissuade him. And because of that, God was well pleased. Acts 2.36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. We know that he rose from the grave. We know that in a, in a magnificent display of victory over death and sin, he ascended into heaven where he's seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. And from there, friends, he reigns as king. Not just king of a, a land or a country or a people, but he reigns as king of the whole universe. There is no higher authority than Jesus. He reigns over all things and his reign is absolute and his reign is inviolable. God raised him from the dead and placed him above all things. Ephesians 1.21 says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his subjection, under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are the church. So what do we have to do? We have to submit to him as our king. But how can we? How can we submit to him as king? Because the stain of our sin is repugnant to him. Our sins offend God. But thankfully, friends, Hebrews 10.10 says, By this will, that's the will that is the obedience of Christ on the cross, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And all that we are required to do is put our faith and our trust in Him for our salvation. Through Christ, all our debt is paid. We've just dealt with that in the previous session. Our guilt has been removed and we can stand righteous before a holy God. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So today, if you're sitting here and you don't know and recognize Christ as your King, 
I su- suggest and I, I invite you to surrender your life to Him. Believe that He is sinless, the same way that John did. Believe that He is righteous, the way that many saw in Him, and the proof was in His acceptability. Believe that He died on the cross for you. Believe that His sacrifice that He made was acceptable and sufficient to appease God. Repent of your sin today. And that sin is the sin of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. Repent today and trust Him. John, 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't wait for another moment. Don't tarry. Don't leave it for another day. He'll make you clean. He'll make you righteous. And you're able to live in glory with Him for all eternity. Wonderful promise, right? If you do know Him as Lord, if you do know Him and recognize Him as your King, and as you recognize afresh in perhaps that He is King of kings and Lord of lords, surrender your life afresh to Him as your King. That means obey His Word, study His Word, proclaim Him publicly, preach the Gospel, yield to Him, submit to Him in every area of your life. Follow Him in obedience and worship Him daily. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we give You Thanks. We give thanks to you according to your righteousness and we'll sing praise the name of Yahweh Most High. Oh Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We will truly worship you as our King for all eternity. And we will sing your praise to all the hosts of heaven. Thank you for saving us from the wrath that was due to us for our sin, for giving us a hope that's eternal. Thank you for sparing us the indignity, the shame, the pain, the agony, the torture, the horrific nature of hanging on that tree ourselves and more so being separated from you for all eternity because of Christ. Make us to be more like him. Make us to be righteous. Make us to be obedient in every way so that we can live God-honoring lives every single day. Lord, we give you thanks for our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.